Easter's coming up, folks. You know what that means. It means some eggs, some resurrection, and some <laughs> modest clothing. And so to get your modest clothing, you need to go to Modest Direct. It's modest. It's stylish. It's affordable clothing. Everything you ladies want. Everything you might need for Easter. It is going to be on this website. If you use the promo code, which is CRUCIAL21, you're going to get 10% off the entire order, Tony. The ent- Tony, listen, Meredith, her, her Easter's coming up. Olivia, Easter's what coming up. What about Melissa? Melissa. Hey, Melissa. Easter's coming up. It's time to go to Modest hey, Direct. Hey, you know Easter's coming. Why you got to settle for that thing you wore last year? Go to ModestDirect.com. Put in promo code CRUCIAL21. Get 10% off your entire order. Guys, that is something you're not going to want to miss. Another thing that we want to talk about for our sponsorship is God First Living. Guys, this is something that's really cool. It's something new. If you own a business or you're an entrepreneur and you want to devote your time to your church, your family, to God, to your business, and you don't know quite how to do it, our good friend Corey Sanders is here to help you out. This guy has owned so many companies. He's got currently got companies right now, such as Sanders & Company, Real Estate, Lockbox Storage, 52 Houses Apartments, Storage Units. This guy does everything, Brian. If you want him to come and talk about how you can divide your time between your church, your family, whatever. This guy's got 20 years plus experience. Go to godfirstliving.com or if you have any questions or anything, you can email him at godfirstliving at gmail.com. Brian, we cooked this weekend. Yes, we did. That was some of the best food. It was some of the best food. People went on and on about it. Bragging. What kind of sauce did you use? Um, The most important sauce that I used was Trauma Hogs barbecue sauce. Well, where can I find that at? Oh, man. I'm glad you asked that, Tony, because Trauma Hogs is in Brooklyn, Arkansas, just right up the road a piece from here, and uh, up the road of yonder. <laughs> you can take a gander over at Trauma Hogs barbecue. And Trauma Hogs barbecue, listen, guys, you need to get on their Facebook page. You need to get on their Instagram page. You need to be watching what they've got because they got specials and pop-ups coming on. There's supposed to, there's gonna be a food truck here at some point. They do some catering. If you got an event going on, and you're out there and you're looking for someone to cater, uh, you can get a hold of Trauma Hogs Barbecue. The phone number is eight seven zero six zero four eight two two seven. They are at sixty one twenty seven Highway forty nine North in Brooklyn, Arkansas seven two four one seven. And if you go there, they sell all kinds of different seasonings, everything that you need. He's about to start selling all sorts of different grills, like uh, barrel smokers. I don't think he's got them in yet, but it's coming. So it's make coming. sure you're watching the Facebook page because there's a lot to be on the lookout for. And I'm super excited about that. But, Tony, we could talk about barbecue for a long time. We could talk about modest clothes for a long time. We could talk about God's first living for a long time. And we can talk about it for a real long time, this next sponsor. The Movement Conference, August 31st through September 2nd. This is something you guys don't want to miss. Brian, look at this lineup. I've got it pulled up on my phone. There's Kenneth Carpenter, Tim Lee, Singapore, my favorite, J.H. Osborne. Brian, help me out here. Come on, Raymond Woodward. You're talking about Jimmy Tony. Matthew Ball, Sam Emery, oh my gosh, David Poole, Aaron, Aaron Bounds. Don't you know Aaron Bounds? Yeah, but here's the thing. I don't know if you know Aaron Bounds. Here's the thing. Registration opens April 1st. That's next week, isn't it? Mm, April 1st is probably... It's, it's, that's not a joke. This ain't no joke. This ain't April Fool's. But here's the thing. The first 400 registrants get $75 per person. 
groups of six or more, $50 per person. We're here to save you some money. You want to be that first 400 The next 200 what what's that price go to? It's going to be $85 a person. Those procrastinators out there, holler if you hear your boy. You're probably not even going to listen to this right now. You're going to listen to this later. Anyway, last 100 registrants get $100 per person. So you want to be in the first. Get the first. You want to be in that first some money. Why would you spend more? Why don't you? Why? Hey, set an alarm for April the 1st at midnight, or I don't know, whenever, when's registration open? Do you April know what the time? 1st, yeah. It's just going to be April the 1st. April the 1st. Guys, on April the 1st, th- listen, you need to call your pastor and be like, hey, I bought tickets for the this conference. Live this ain't no moment. joke. This ain't no April Fool's joke. We're actually going. And so this is going to be nice. Get in that first little bit. Save yourself a little bit of money. Because you need to spend it at Chom Hogs Barbecue on Modest Direct, and you need to spend it uh, from some God First Living. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. That's a bunch of stuff. It's exciting to stuff. And, and if you don't remember it all, rewind it, listen to it again. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I would say, most importantly, ladies, time's running out. Get that dress from Modest Direct. Boom, done. This is an awesome episode. We're about Crucial that. 21. Promo code. Promo code, yeah. I'm tired of saving everybody money. I'm not, I like it. Ugh. Man, there's just so much money out there to be saved. My heart is at 100% capacity for you guys. <laughs> oh, Brian, tell us a little bit about this episode coming up. Oh, man. This episode, we got a pastor on here. He started some more, um, some churches. A guy that got into church, having no background experience. Look, I'm spoiling everything already. Scott Breedlove is on the podcast today. You guys are going to enjoy hearing his heartbeat. I'm excited to bring this to you guys. Tony, play that music. Here it goes. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Tonight, me and Brian is going to be up for a little while, and what better way to spend the night than to cook some food and to have a podcast. We are so honored to have a guest with us tonight that's been busy all day today. We've been trying to have a, uh, uh, a chance to find the time uh, to record with Pastor Scott Breedlove um, on the Missouri District Board, uh, pastors a home missions church, um, but that's that's not really what defines him. What defines him is the grace of God. And we are so glad to have you on, brother. Uh, thank you for sitting down with us at 938 at night uh, after you've been working all day and then working for your church all night. Uh, we count it as an honor that you'd be on the podcast with us tonight. Oh, no. Thank you for having me. We're just getting started, right? So yeah. <laughs> 930 is when my uh, intelligence starts kicking in. So thank you all for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, uh, no problem. So, like I said, um, God's grace really defines your story, bro. You told me a little bit about what was going on. Uh, I had someone reach out to us via email wanting to have you on our podcast. They said, you got to hear this guy's story. Um, let's let's go back, man. Tell us a little bit about who you are, kind of where you come from. Um, tell, tell us who you are. Okay. Well, I I grew up in a little bitty town called Union, Missouri. Well, when I say little bitty, about 5,000 people, Um, you know, and and I would kind of tell people somewhat that I had a little bit of a leave it to beaver kind of background as far as uh, now we weren't church people, but 
um, you know, my mom didn't work outside the home. And so when I would get home from school, she would be waiting with um, milk and cookies on the table. We lived on a farm and we had horses. And so we would go off horse riding in the afternoons. I had a dad that was involved in my sports team. So I played a lot of sports and he was always the coach. He coached my baseball teams and basketball teams. Uh, I have one older brother. And so we were kind of like this just good, solid family. Again, not with the church piece, but, you know, from natural eyes, I guess to say, it looked like a great family. Um, you know, and I love my mom and dad dearly, but my brother uh, graduated, went into the Air Force. So he was gone. I was 16, had just gotten my first car. And uh, my parents sat me down one day and said they were getting divorced. And, uh, you know, kind of came out of nowhere, really. And so it was just a couple of days later, my dad moved out of the house and, you know, kind of just rocked my world. It's interesting now, um, a few years ago, I was going to do this interview and they said, we're going to ask you one question. If you could go back and tell your 17 year old self something, what would you say? You know, what, what, when I gave that thought, when I look back, because that was about the time my parents, you know, divorced, separated and divorced is, you know, I would say, don't be afraid to tell someone you need help to talk through stuff, you know, but back then as a 17 year old, you're like, oh, this didn't bother me. I've got my own life. I can handle it. But up until that point, actually, I was 16. I was vice president of my National Honor Society at my high school. I was a straight A student, uh, one of the best athletes in my school. And really, like, you know, I never my parents didn't drink alcohol. There was never alcohol in our home, no drugs, anything like that. So I'd never been around that. But it was actually just probably a month or so after my parents kind of separated you know, my mom got a job for the first time. So I was coming home from school and nobody was there. And, um, and, and so I just kind of ended up at this party a couple of months later and there were some guys there smoking marijuana and they offered it to me. And I didn't honestly even really know what it was, but kind of wanted to fit in, you know, was probably again, angry about what was going on in my life. And so, so I drank alcohol and tried marijuana for the first time that night. And I was 16 and, um, and that kind of just opened a new door for me. And so I, I fell into this group of, of people and my junior year of high school, again, I was the vice president of national honor society, but I ended up going out drinking on a Friday night and went to a football game, a local high school football game, um, drunk and ended up passing out in front of everybody, they actually rushed me to the hospital. And, um, and, and I almost died that night, but they, um, you know, pumped my stomach, put some IVs in me. And, uh, and so I was suspended from school, kicked out of National Honor Society. Uh, and that was kind of the first time my parents knew, you know, wait a minute, Scott's going down the wrong path. So they, you know, they tried to help me, but um, I just kept going down that path. And so I got pretty heavily involved into drugs and, um, and, you know, selling drugs, honestly. Um, it's kind of interesting because I kind of had two lives that I guess the two things I've always told people that I had going for me was I was smart as far as school and I was fast as far as running. <laughs> um, and so while I was doing drugs and doing, uh, you know, this life on nights and weekends and things, 
Um, I was still making decent grades and was running for my high school. So I ended up going to college um, on to run track at a college. And so I continued through college using drugs. Uh, I always wonder how fast I would have been if I wasn't recuperating every week after a weekend of partying. But, you know, I was selling drugs, using drugs, and, and I'll shorten this a little bit. It, it was actually my senior year in college, and I was working part-time as a bartender, I'm still using cocaine, marijuana, alcohol, acid, pretty regularly selling it. Um, and I took an interest in this lady or lady, I say lady, girl, we were college age, right? We were uh, what I would have been 21. This was 1992. So I was 21. And I asked this girl out and she said, well, Scott, I can't go out with you. I know what you do, right? It's kind of a small town, college campus. She's like, uh, and I'm a Christian. And so I said, well, you know, I'll be a Christian if you want me to be, right? Like, if that's all it takes to, for you to date me, then, then I'll do that. And so she said, well, I'll tell you what, there's a Bible study here on campus on Tuesday night. So why don't you come to this Bible study with me? And so that Tuesday night, I, I go to this Bible study and there's probably 20 students there. Most of them are athletes of diff different sports, of kind of a mixed group, Methodist, Baptist, Catholic. I mean, it, it was just this mixed group. And there was a lady teaching the Bible study and she taught that night about you needing the Holy Ghost, right? Um, and I, don't, I have no idea what that is, but she talked about it, used some scriptures, said God wants to live inside of you. And so we left that Bible study. I didn't give it much thought. And a couple of days later, I was walking across the college campus and this lady that taught the Bible study was walking across the campus. And she walks right past me and she looks at me and, you know, she had remembered me from the Bible study the couple of days before. And she looked at me and said, Scott, something to the fact, I, I, I won't get this exactly right, but I'll get it close. She said, Scott, God's going to use you and just kept walking. And I'm just like looking around like, who is this lady? Right. But no big deal. So the next Tuesday night, I went back to the Bible study with this girl that I was trying to date and this lady, same group of kids there. And this lady taught another lesson about you need the Holy Ghost. God wants to live inside of you. He wants to give you power. And um, so that was the second Tuesday night in a row. So the very next night on Wednesday night, I was in Walmart there in our local town. And I come around the corner and here's this lady with her husband and two kids. And she just looks at me and she's like, Scott, God's got a plan for your life. And just kept walking. And I'm like, like, this is bizarre, right? Like, who does that? Like, what does she even mean? And, and so the very next night, this is September of 1992, I was bartending. It was a Thursday night. And it was like this little country dive bar. And uh, no one was really even in there that night. And so we could drink when we were working. So I'd had a few beers and I was shooting pool by myself because I didn't really have any customers. Um, and actually I just, I wrote an article for the Herald. I think it was published last year in the Pentecostal Herald. And the title of my article was the night God walked into the bar because it was like, I was shooting pool and all of a sudden I felt this presence in the bar and, and just not audible, but in my, like inside of me. Right. And, and so you got to understand this is someone I've never stepped foot in church. I couldn't have told you who David and Goliath was. I knew nothing. 
I'd had two Tuesday night Bible studies where both times this strange lady says, you need to be filled with God's spirit. And so I'm in the bar and I feel this presence in there. And, and inside of me, it was like in my head, I hear this voice say, what are you going to do with your life? Keep wasting it or do something different. And so I called the owner of the bar. Her name was Irene. I called Irene and I said, Irene, so this is probably 10, roughly 10 o'clock at night on a Thursday night. And I said, Irene, I don't know what's going on, but I'm quitting and I'm going to give my life to God. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I said, I don't even really know. I said, but I feel this strange feeling. I've got to do something different. And she said, well, you can't just walk out. You know, you're my only employee. Let me come up there. I said, well, you better hurry. And so she drives up to the bar and she comes in. She's like, Scott, what's going on? I said, Irene, I really don't know. But I handed her the keys and I drove back to my apartment. I, I lived off campus in this apartment with two other guys. They weren't there. So I walk into my apartment and, and this literally is how it happened, right? I walk into my apartment. I kneel down by my bed and I said, God, I don't know anything about you, but this lady, and I said her name, I said, she says, I need your spirit. And if it's real, I want it. And I start speaking in other tongues. It just started pouring out of my mouth, right? This is like 1030. So literally, I probably said a 10 second, 15 second prayer and, and God filled me with the Holy Ghost and it started coming out of me. And, and so it spooked me, right? This strange stuff is coming out of my mouth. And so this is 28 years ago. So, I mean, we still had rotary phones and phone books back then. And, and so I knew this lady's name. So I get out the phone book and I find her number and I call her and I say, I, I said her name and I said, there is strange stuff coming out of my mouth. And she said, that's the Holy Ghost. That's what I've been teaching you about the last two Tuesdays. She's like, get over to my house. And so I get in my car, I drive over to her house. It's getting close to 11 maybe. And her and her husband start talking to me about God and the Bible and the Holy Ghost. And so they talked to me to probably three or four in the morning, Friday morning. And um, so then I'm like, I said, well, what do I do now? And she said, well, Scott, she said, I'm going to be honest with you. She said, there's really only good, one good spirit filled church here in town. And she said, we used to go to it for a while, but they have some standards and some different things we don't really believe in. So we've quit going. She said, we just really have church here in our home, just our family. We get up on Sundays and just my husband teaches me and our kids just a lesson here because there's really we haven't found a, a good church in town to go to. She's like, but you might like that church. And so she wrote the address down and, and wrote the name of the church down, United Pentecostal Church. Um, north, I forget the exact address now, but um, she wrote it down. And so that was Friday morning. I went home, slept. Um, and then, you, you, and obviously you guys feel free to stop me whenever, but I got up that Sunday morning and went off to that church. And it was this, you know, not, not a big church, a little church out in the middle of a field on the edge of town. And so I go in there having no idea what church should be like, right? I'm walking in as a 20 year old, drug user, drug dealer, couldn't have told you who Daniel and the lion's den was. So I walk into this church, not really knowing in my mind what to even expect. Um, and so I go in there, 
and there's probably 30 people there. And I can tell you the way they had church was not what I expected church to be like. Um, you know, they had a lady up front that sat in a chair off to the side with an accordion. Um, I'm not sure I even knew what an accordion was, but she's playing this instrument and they start singing and she gets up and starts kind of hollering and then starts twirling down the middle aisle of this little building, still playing the accordion. Um, there's an older guy in the, the pew next to me. I just happened to, you know, pick a pew and this older guy stands up and just starts dancing there. In the, and I'm just like, it breaks out. Um, and That's I'm the way it always like, goes, though. I was about to say, right? no new person ever has a normal first time experience. <laughs> They're never like, yeah, we came in, they sang a few songs, they took up the offering. And I think the, I'm going to go back. The preacher did a good <laughs> sermon, and then, you know, they welcomed us back, and we decided, yeah, we could. It's always, yeah, the church mother, she knocked over two pews getting out of her, <laughs> getting over to the front to shout. I sure done stepped on my shoe, <laughs> shouting. Yeah. yeah. It's no. never it's never the easy way when you're a first time visitor. Yeah. No. Um, you know, I'll I, I'll sidetrack for a second because you just made me think of it. But a, a, a friend of mine that pastors told me this story years ago. But he said he had been working on some people to come to his church for about a year. They they went to a denominal church in town and he had been working on them, working on them. And they came walking in one Sunday morning. And you know, he had his, some typical old time Pentecostal people that would get with it. And, and he said he found himself on the platform kind of almost saying like a private prayer, right? Like, God, don't let it get too crazy this morning. These people I've been working on for a year are here. And, and he said nothing really happened out of the ordinary. Like people were calm and he preached, a, he thought a decent sermon. Um, he didn't get a chance to really talk to him after service. So he said the next day at work, because they were co-workers. So at work, he saw him. He said, man, it was so good to have you. What'd you think? And he said, they looked at him and said, well, it was nice. But, you know, you've really been trying to get us to go there. We didn't really see how it was much different than our church. Mm. And he said, God just convicted him and said, you've been praying, trying to get these folks to your church. And then when they walked in, you actually said a prayer to me to make sure the spirit doesn't just break out because you were worried what they would think. But what they thought was there's nothing different here than what I already have. Um, you know, so that's always kind of just stood with me. Yeah. So then, Brian has a similar situation. He uh, we had a, uh, a church service where we had a whole other church from a different denomination come to our church and Brian was on the schedule to preach and he could probably tell you the story better than I could, but like the spirit of God fell. And, you know, um, we had people from this other church, you know, getting baptized, you know, praying through to the Holy ghost. And it's one of those services where a typical Pentecostal is going to be like, Oh, God really moved. We didn't have preaching, but yeah. Brian, Brian had determined and made up his mind. He's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm preaching. This is, <laughs> this is the prime opportunity to sow a seed in somebody. So they don't just get a Pentecostal worship experience, but they actually mm. get something that they can actually use to be rooted in. Yeah. You know, I, one of my, one of my biggest pet peeves is whenever someone says, Oh, church was so good tonight. We didn't even have preaching. Oh, uh, come on now. I can't <laughs> stand when someone says that I cringe. Oh. 
Yeah, that's that's one of my biggest pet peeves. Well, oh, what made it so good? You didn't have to sit through the the preacher preaching while you're on your phone. Is that what it was? But, right. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's a little soapbox for me. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, that. Um, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And you know, I think I heard Jeff Arnold say in a sermon one time, you know, a move of God never offends the hungry. And, yeah, that's uh, true. And and I thought that was powerful. If people are there. And if they're there for the wrong reasons, they might knit, you know, nitpick and stuff. But if 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 someone sitting there is hungry and it's a true, you know, not humans making it up, but if it's a true move of the Holy Ghost, that will never offend a hungry person. Um, and so 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 anyway, you know, kind of back to my story, like so. So, yeah, that church, it, I mean, they got with it that Sunday morning. And so, you know, again, I'm this new Holy Ghost filled since Thursday night guy. Don't know anything. But I'm like, this just seems weird to me. And so, I mean, as soon as I could get out of there, when the pastor kind of closed service, I was out the door, like, because I was kind of toward the back. I mean, I, nobody got a chance to shake my hand. I was getting in my car and had no intentions of ever going back to that church. And I get in my car and start to try to back out of the parking lot. And there's actually like a knock on my car window. And I look over there. And there's this girl standing there. I don't know. I'm guessing she was 13, 14. She was probably in her early teens at that time. Um, and it ended up, I found out later, well, you know, as I started going there, it was one of the pastor's daughter. He had a couple of daughters, but, but I'll never forget because I rolled the window down and she's like, you know, just this smile on her face. And she's like, it was so good to have you at church this morning. And, and then she said this, because I'll just never forget this. She said, uh, you know, we have church on Sunday nights at six o'clock. And she's like, I would love for, we would love for you to come back. She's like, church was, you know, a, a little, she said something to the effect of, you know, it was pretty good this morning, but we really have church on Sunday nights. And I'm just looking at her and, and like, like, I don't even know what that means. I just saw people twirling down your aisle and dancing and shouting. I'm like, you know, I had no idea people did that in church. And so I'm just, you know, trying to be polite to her. I'm like, sure, roll up the window drive off i'll never see you again hard pass yeah uh, <laughs> uh, so i go home and i'm just sitting there all day but god's just dealing with me and, and not that god made me get in my car like right like it wasn't a robot but come 5 30 or so i found myself getting in my car and driving back out to that building and she was right they really had church on sunday night I hadn't seen anything on Sunday morning. So, um, and so, so that was my experience on that Sunday. Then Tuesday, right? So Tuesday, I went back to this Bible study on, on the campus. And when they would end the Bible study, we would all stand in a circle and hold hands. And the lady leading the study would open with a prayer. She would say a prayer and, and she would squeeze the person's hand standing to the right of her. And if you wanted to pray, you could say something. If you didn't want to pray, you would squeeze the next person's hand. So it would go around the circle till it got back to her. And then she would close in prayer. And so, you know, the first two Tuesdays I went, I was just there to date this girl. So I would just squeeze the hand. I mean, I wasn't going to say anything. But that Tuesday night after I received the Holy Ghost, I was the last person by the lady teaching the study. And so, you know, she started, went to the right, it went around the circle. And when the person squeezed my left hand and it was my turn, 
I'm like, well, maybe I'll try to say something. And to this day, I really couldn't tell you how long I prayed or what I said, but I just prayed. And then when I squeezed her hand so she could close, nothing, like she didn't say anything. And so I opened my eyes and looked up, like, what, why didn't she say anything? And like all of these 20 students, these people in this circle, probably half of them are crying and they're all just staring at me. And, and I'm looking around and someone just looked at me and, and, and they said, Scott, what happened to you? Like, like wh what was that? I've, I've never felt something like that when someone was praying. Like, like God, I guess, and I still don't even know what I said to this day or what happened there, but like God just kind of used that prayer and begin to touch people. But like we had revival over the next couple of months. And so again, you're talking Baptist, Catholic, Methodist, there was a mixed group. Every single student um, that was going to that group received the Holy Ghost over the next month or two. Um, people were getting the Holy Ghost all over that college campus. Uh, I remember one day I was walking through like the quad area and two girls that I knew that had, were kind of connected to that study were sitting there and they're like, Scott, come over here. And I, I, I walked over there and I'm just like, Hey, what are you guys doing? And they said, well, we're just sitting here kind of talking about the Lord and, and let's pray. Like this one girl said, would you mind praying with us? And, and she just received the Holy ghost. As soon as we started praying, she started speaking in tongues right there on the college quad campus. Um, people were getting the Holy ghost in their dorm rooms. Like, like on in that group, God just broke out. Um, and, and so it was, it was just, it was kind of a, a great time, if you will, in the Lord, just seeing God move across that college campus. Um, you know, most of those over time. Um, so at one time I brought all of those folks to the church out there. And so there were a couple of Sunday mornings, you're talking about a church of 30 people and 20 college students come walking in on a Sunday morning, wow. Methodist, Catholic, Baptist, all just haven't received the Holy Ghost. <laughs> um, and, and so it was kind of a unique experience. Um, you know, a couple stuck. Uh, I obviously did. And uh, my one of my best friends off the track team uh, ended up um, going to that church and he actually ended up marrying a girl there. And so now 28 years later, he's still in that church and is a minister in that church. And so um, that we got saved in, but that is it was, epic. yeah, it was an exciting time, exciting time. So, so let me ask you this, um, just cause it's fresh on my mind. You were invited to that church or told where that church is by a family that because of the standards of that church, so they didn't want to go anymore. It was a deterrent for them. Or it was the standards of that church as you coming in from an unchurched background, was it a deterrent for you, a stumbling block for you, or were you like, I like how this is different? For me, it was like, I really came in and I, I was just hungry, right? I've, I'm coming out of this drug world. Um, you know, looking back now, I realized like, I mean, I was going from, you know, one drug party to the next, one bed to the next. I mean, I was, I was empty on the inside looking for something to fill it. And when God filled it with his spirit, you know, I was like a sponge. Uh, in fact, um, I actually have my first Bible that, that the pastor gave me. And I read the entire Bible all the way through in less than two months. 
Um, I was literally, cause I was a college student and, you know, I had a few classes, but besides that, I had a lot of free time that I was using with partying and stuff. And now I'm not doing any of that. So I just have all this free time. So I was reading my Bible for hours at a time and was just eating it up. And, and my pastor and, and his wife, um, you know, they invited me to start coming to their house right away. Um, they would bring me to their house. I think it was Monday nights, maybe, but every Monday night, me and the friend I told you about that ended up staying in and he's still in that church, they, they would bring the two of us to their house every Monday night, and they taught us exploring God's word Bible study, um, and my pastor's wife to this day still carries in her purse, like, a list of questions that I wrote after coming to, like, two or three Bible studies. I, I was just sitting at home one day, and I just started writing down all these questions. Are there any foods I can't eat? Is there... Um, you know, I, I don't remember all the, but there was a list of like 30 questions. Um, you know, what can I wear? Like, I just had all these questions and I wrote them on a sheet of paper. And so I showed up for Bible study and, and, and instead of doing the lesson, I'm like, instead of doing the lesson, I'm like, can you just answer these questions for me? You know? Um, and if they showed it to me in the Bible, like I'm good. Right. Like, um, they showed me tithing in the Bible and I started tithing as a poor college student and I've never, uh, missed a day till this day. And, uh, and, and God's blessed me. I could tell story after story of financial m miracles God's given me. Like, I'm like, if you show it to me in the Bible, you know, uh, I'm going to do it. I'll, I'll tell this other story because it's just kind of funny, but I think it was maybe my second or third week at church. And the pastor preached that Sunday night about blind Bartimaeus. Right. And I go home and I'm just sitting at home amazed. I'm like, are you kidding me? God heals blind people. Like, like you gotta be kidding me. And I just read that story over and over that night. Like, this is incredible. And, and so the funny thing was I was going to college, you know, I was in college and that semester I, so you I got saved in September of 92. So we had just started that semester in August, right at the end of August. I had a chemistry professor that was blind, Dr. Woolers. And so I'm, I'm, I'm reading this story after church by myself at home. Like, this is incredible. God heals blind people. And so I made up in my mind, like, this is awesome. I'm going to go heal my professor tomorrow. Like it just, I was just, I just believed it. I'm like, I saw it in the Bible and it just made sense to me. So man, the next morning I get up I, uh, Monday morning, I didn't even have chemistry class. But I just get dressed and I go to Dr. Wooler's office on campus and uh, I knock on the door and Dr. Wooler says, come on in. And so I open the door and he had a student with him because, uh, again, because of him being blind, he always had a student with him helping him. And I said, Dr. Wooler, um, you have no idea who I am because, you know, we've been in class a couple of weeks and there was like 100 students in this class. I said, but my name's Scott Breedlove. And I said, I'm in your chemistry class. And I said, I just became a Christian a couple of weeks ago. And last night at church, my pastor preached about a guy named Blind Bartimaeus. And I'm like, I don't know if you know this, but God heals blind people. And I said, so Dr. Willers, I'm going to lay my hands on you and God's going to give you your sight back. And he said, Scott, I really appreciate you coming over here. Uh, and he said, but I want you to know I'm a Christian. And um, he said, over the years, I've been blind. Something happened as a child. He said, I've been blind since a child. He said, over the years, you know, people have prayed for me to get my sight. And 
God's chosen not to do that. Uh, and he said, so while I appreciate you coming here. He said, I've actually kind of come to the conclusion that God uses my blindness to show other people that even with these kind of things in life, you can still be faithful and serve God. He said, so while I appreciate coming over here, you know, I would ask you not to put your hands on me. Um, and so, you know, I left, but I've always wondered till this day, what would have happened if he would have let me, right? Because I'm just Absolutely. this convert yeah. that believes anything's possible. Yeah, yeah this, this full of faith. Yeah, so faith. I, I want to ask you a question. So you were so full of faith at that moment. And I want to use a personal story here. My first real job out of high school was I was I would sell I was selling vehicles. I was a car salesman of all things. And my boss told me, he said, the longer you're ignorant, the better off you're going to be. <laughs> and my, uh, you know, that that translated into dollars for me. Because I was just going out there and doing my hardest. I was hustling. And if I didn't know the answer, I wouldn't make something up. And I, I didn't understand, you know, that, you know, some guys would do absolutely anything to sell a car, no matter, you know, tell them, oh, yeah, this is what a one owner, grandma driving back and forth to church on Sundays, put in the garage. And then, you know, little did we know a teenager had it and wrecked it five times and it's been flipped and everything <laughs> else. But, but that's how we are as Christians as well. Whenever we're young babes in Christ and we have whenever we're full of that of the Holy Ghost and you know freshly been baptized and we're studying our Bible, we're so full of faith. Mm. At what point do we does that transition into mm. almost being too smart and too knowledgeable for our own good? Right. So I think of it this way. You know, you're born in the natural. And, and little kids oftentimes, not always, but sometimes I, my experience has been little kids, you know, they're sitting in front of a whole group of people picking their nose, doesn't bother them at all, right? Like, like they, they just have this childlike wonder. And then even as kids get older, even with my own kids, and I remember doing this to my parents, all of a sudden I start worrying about what other people think. And, and you know, now I'm too cool to be seen with mom and dad. And so you kind of see this sometimes in the natural world and, and, you know, it, it, what a great point. Cause I look back now and, and, and I'll share this other story here, but I think back of, of how that does happen. You go from this newborn, right? Uh, Nicodemus, you must be born again. So this new birth and this childlike wonder and faith. And I even think back about then, I, you, you don't know there's anything wrong with the church. You don't know that there's politics sometimes in the church. You don't know that people bicker in the church. Like I'm just walking into church. Like this is the greatest thing in my life. Like this is what I've been looking for my whole life. And I mean, I love everybody. The pastor can't do anything wrong. I mean, he walked on water to me, right? Uh, if he said it in the Bible, I believed it. Like I'm just gung ho. Um, you know, but, and I don't know why that, but all of a sudden we start to grow. And then we start to, you know, lose that focus a little bit. I think, you know, in the book of Revelation, when it talks about you've left your first love, go back and do that again, that, that we, you know, how do we keep that new convert mentality? Because, you know, even looking back, right? So, so I come out of this drug world. I'm so excited. Now, fast forward, I don't even know however many years, but now I'm assisting a church. I'm a licensed minister with the United Pentecostal Church, and I'm standing in the back of the church one night, 
and the door opens and this guy comes walking in higher than a kite. I mean, I, you know, I came from that world. So I smelled it. I recognized it. And I'm like, you know, can I help you? He's like, I'm here for church. And he come to find out he lived in a mobile home. You could throw a rock from the back door of the church and him and some friends were down there getting high. And he just happens to look up and is like, I'm going to church tonight. So he comes walking into church high. I end up teaching him a Bible study and uh, he gets saved. In fact, he's a pastor here in Missouri now of United Pentecostal Church. Um, and we're still good friends. But so he starts coming to church, right? So now he's the new convert coming out of the drug world. And I'm the sophisticated, licensed minister now. And one night I'm on the platform doing my Pentecostal hop, safe hop, right? Um, and, and this guy, James, man, he's getting with it. And, and he's the new convert now. And so he takes off running around the church. And man, he come around the front on the right side. And when he hit the front, he drops down. You hear about this, but I'm not sure I'd even ever seen this. And he rolled all the way across the front of the church. I mean, all the way, jumped up, ran another lap, got to the front again, dropped, rolled all the way across, jumped up, took off running again. And I'm standing up there doing my little safe clap hop. And God just spoke to me that night. And because I'm thinking to myself, man, James, I don't know, you're a little out of control. And God tapped me on the shoulder right in the middle of watching James and said, you used to be like that. What happened? Right. What happened? And, and that broke me that night. And, and I'm not saying that I still don't. I just think it's a tendency for us to keep getting pulled into the, back into that safe world where we think we're breaking out in worship and we think we're doing these things, but it's not what it used to be. And so once in a while, I just got to get in that prayer room or have God remind me, don't lose that, you know, Acts chapter three, lame man that jumps up and goes running and leaping into the temple. Don't ever lose that. So... Yeah, I mean, you, it, it, you just gotta. It's it's it is tough sometimes. Like you know, I mean, obviously, you know, everybody goes through it. Those those times where it just almost becomes some of the routine. But you know, like even like in your marriage and stuff, there's a lot of things that can just become routine. That's and, right. And in, and in your marriage, there, you know, one of the things like um, you know, just about any any relationship book you're going to find says, you know, you got to do something to kind of re-spark something to, to do something kind of out of the ordinary. And, and it's good to have those things. Like it's, it's what creates a healthy relationship, like with yeah, the spouse. Yeah. And it's the same with God every now and then you need something that breaks out of your routine. And, yeah. and of course, yeah. you know, cause the, the worst thing is for it just to become old hat, just become, I just do this because it's what I've always done. It's what I'm comfortable with. And you know, you, you need, you definitely need that reminder like you had that, you know, that used to be you. Why, why is it not you? Why, why don't, why, if anyone should be thankful, it should be us that's been around for a long time. Right. Because, I mean, like like with, with you, I mean, now you weren't just delivered, but now you've been delivered for years and years. And, and you know, you can look at people that's lives have been wrecked that were in the same situation that you were in. So you had no background in church before you walked in that church the first time? No, uh -uh. maybe as a kid, um, I would go visit my grandparents and I think I may have went to church a couple of times, but I had nothing, 
nothing. Yeah. So, so what all did your family think about it whenever you were uh, called into the ministry and, and now you were a minister? Was everyone supportive or was everybody like, oh, that's great. But they really like, like what, what did the, your, your circle think about when you were first called? Yeah. So, um, you know, I was living in a town. I was probably three hours away from my parents and my older brother. And so um, they still weren't church people. And, um, and so, you know, I started telling them about what God had done for me. And uh, my mom first, I, I was talking to my mom on the phone one night and I said, Hey, I'm going to come home one weekend and I want to teach you a Bible study. So, so I went home and on Saturday, I, I spent most of the day Saturday talking to my mom, teaching her a Bible study, um, going through the Bible with her. And then um, I'd actually, my pastor had called her pastor and he said, well, why don't you preach for Sunday morning? And I hadn't been in church that long, but you know, I don't know if I'd mentioned that, but from the, the first Sunday I walked into that church, um, I preached my first sermon right about two and a half months later. Uh, and so um, in my pastor, turnaround. Yeah, pretty quick turnaround. And, and in fact, you know, I look back now, my pastor was just so good to work with me. And they actually started a Saturday night youth night so that me and my best friend, he started preaching about the same time. So he let us, you know, I probably preached more in the first six months of church than some people have preached in their first five years. Like he, he was, you know, using us and helping us and working with us. So, um, but I went home, taught my mom a Bible study on Saturday and took her to, to the UPC church in her town the next morning. And it's right in the middle of song service. And I'm up on the platform because I'm going to be preaching. And my mom gets up and comes walking up and motions with her finger for the pastor. I'm like, oh, no, like, what is she doing? And he goes walking over there and leans down. She whispers to him. He gets in the pulpit and stops the music. And he said, um, you know, this lady, Scott's mom, Judy, um, just told me she wants to be baptized tonight. And I'm like, what? Like, awesome. Um, but I couldn't stay because I had to be get back to, to my town. I had something to do that night. And so I'll never forget the pastor calling me that night where my mom was at. So she went back that night to get baptized. And he called me later that night. He said, Scott, I've been pastoring. I think he'd pastored there like 20, 30 years or something like that. And he said, I've never had this, seen this experience. He said, your mom came jumping out of the water. Like, like she literally jumped up out of the baptismal tank and started screaming, I'm free. And, um, and started speaking in tongues. Like God filled her the whole, with the Holy Ghost coming up out of the water. But he said, what got him, he had seen that before, but she was just kind of yelling, I'm free. You know, I'm free. Um, and so my mom embraced it. She started going to that church, um, and, and she went for a while. Uh, and then again, my mom kind of, um, you know, fell away, if you will, over some standard things she didn't agree with. And, and so she's kind of bounced around a little bit with some different Pentecostal style churches, um, still goes to church. She, she lives about an hour from where I pastor now, um, and actually comes to my church a couple of times a month, she comes up a couple of times a month, you know, she's like, if I lived in your town, I would come to your church every, you know, week or whatever. Now I'm her son. So, um, but, and then my dad, uh, once I started having kids, it was interesting. One time my, my oldest son, I don't even know how old he was. He was two or three. He was sitting on my dad's lap and looked up at him and said, Papa, why don't you go to church? Uh, and that like just touched my dad. 
Um, and it's, again, it's a denominal church, not saying, um, I would agree with their beliefs per se, but my dad ended up going to a church. He's actually their adult Sunday school teacher and on their deacon board now, um, in this denominal church. And then just a couple of years ago, my brother and his wife and three kids started going to a church again, kind of a denominal church. So, so, you know, I'm kind of still, if you will, the only apostolic in my family, but, but but I was kind of the start of all of my family kind of opening their lives up to God, if you will. Um, so. So what's your passion at what you do now? So my passion now. Um, so I met my wife at a Missouri youth convention and we got married. We'd been married about six months. We were assistant at a church and my wife uh, had family that lived in Iowa and so we went up to visit them one weekend and we, as we drove into Cedar Rapids, Iowa, I felt almost that same voice that I felt that night in the bar. And I felt this voice in my head, if you will, said, start a church here. And so um, my wife's family actually went to the Presbyter's church because my wife grew up in church. And so um, they, uh, I preached for him actually that weekend. And so I asked him, I said, what about this town, Cedar Rapids? Cause he pastored in a town about 30 miles away. I said, what about Cedar Rapids? And he said, well, there's Cedar Rapids is 120,000 people. And they, they had one church that had been there for years. He's like, we would love to have another church. And so I said, well, I think God just told me to move here and start a church. So we went back home, told our pastor. And, uh, a few months later we were living in Cedar Rapids and uh, started our first home missions church. And we were there eight years, you know, and when we started our first service, it was me, my wife and our six month old son. And uh, we were there eight years, God blessed us. Um, we grew a church to about 150 in, in those eight years, it was going good. I mean, we had just bought a brand new building. Um, we had, I had just went full time at the church. And we were doing a lot of, which I'll get into in a minute when you said my passion, we, we were doing a lot of um, addiction ministry because that's my passion. That's the word I came out of. But so we were, we were doing well there. God was really blessing. And um, I had left one weekend to come to Missouri to visit my family who lives you know, in Southern Missouri. And, and even though I'd grown up in Missouri, I never really had been to the capital much, Jefferson City, but I was driving through Jefferson City. Um, and that same voice, third time in my life that I've heard this voice, almost the exact saying, I'm driving through Jeff City and I hear this voice from God say, start a church here. And I'm like, what? Like, we just bought our building. We just bought our first house in Cedar Rapids. I just went full time. Like, like it, I'm not just saying it was happening. Like we were knocking up. I mean, God was and I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, how do I tell my wife that even? Um and so I go back after the weekend, I tell my wife, I'm like, you're not going to believe this. And, and I actually got the manual out first because I'm like, I don't even know if there's a church in Jeff City. Um, and Jeff City's the capital of Missouri, has about 50,000 people. And there was a church here, one church. It's been here 40, 50 years. Um, but I told my wife, I said, you're not going to believe what happened. I said, I was driving through Jeff and God told me to move to Jeff City and start a church. And she's like, what? Um, and so the district superintendent at the time was Brother Stan Gleason. And I knew Brother Gleason. I'd met him like twice at different events, but didn't know him well. Like he knew my name probably. But I called Brother Gleason and I said, Brother Gleason, it's, you know, Scott Bree Love. And he said, yeah. And I said, um, like, God told me to move to Jeff City and start a church. And he's like, you know, Brother Breedlove, he said, will you do me a favor? He said, will you pray about it for six months and make sure it's God? 
And I said, sure. So I mean, six months to the day I was on the phone and I called Brother Gleason. I said, I still feel it. And so he said, all right, let's start the process. And so he had us come down and meet the board. Um, we told my church in Cedar Rapids, we resigned our church there and we moved to Jeff City. Didn't know anybody here, right? It was me, my wife and three kids at the time. And so we planted our second church here uh, with just my family of five of us. And so uh, we've been here. Uh, in fact, in August of this year, we will uh, we're having a special service celebrating our 50, 15 year anniversary. So we've actually been here 15 years now. Um, and we've got a congregation of a little over 100, about 110 folks. And, you know, things are going good. Like, I really feel like God's just getting ready to really um, open the door. But tying that in, my passion, what we do a lot of, and, and obviously, you know, I, I always want to make sure I tell people, like, this isn't the only thing we do. Like, we have a lot of ministries we run out of our church. Um, but we are definitely what I would call a recovery-friendly church. And, and so, you know, when we moved to Jeff City, a um, couple of the first things that I did, we started knocking doors because, you know, we're here. We don't have any money. We don't know anybody. So we just start knocking doors. Um, but one of the first things I did is they have two prisons here in Jeff City. And so I contacted the prisons to see about getting a prison service because, I, you know, again, that's my passion, those kind of ministries. And so... Um, we began to hold a prison service every Thursday night pretty soon after being in Jeff. And uh, we did a prison service for a number of years. Um, in fact, the last year we were in the prison, the, during that entire year, we baptized right around 115 people and had uh, right at 40 get the Holy Ghost during that year. Um, they ended up getting a new chaplain who locked us down basically and and so we had to kind of leave. He, he took over and wouldn't let us baptize people anymore uh, in different things. So we um, unfortunately aren't doing prison ministry right now. But so prison ministry was a big part. And then the other thing is, and, and I'll share this quote. Um, so I made a friend who is a bishop in his denomination. And it, it's not an apostolic church. Again, they don't have our beliefs, but he pastors, it may even be a church of God in Christ, I'm not sure, but he pastors a church in his town. He's in a town of less than a thousand people. And, and he actually asked me to come preach for him. So when I drove into his town, you're driving through this little bitty country town and you come around a corner and there's just this megaplex church. And they have a church that at that time was running four to 500 people in a town of less than a thousand. Um, and then I got to talking to him and, and he began to tell me about all the grants they had written. They had a computer lab where they taught people, you know, they helped people get their high school diploma. They had a food bank. They had a clothing bank. They had, a, uh, I believe, a domestic violence shelter. They just had all this stuff they were doing. And then he told me this statement. He asked me a question and he looked me right in the face and he said, Scott, let me just ask you a question. And, and I said, yeah, and we'd had our church, you know, going for a little bit here in Jeff City. But he said, here's the question you should always ask yourself as a pastor. And I said, OK, what is it? And he said, if your church closes the doors tomorrow, would your community care? And that uh, to this day now, probably 12 years later, 13 years later, like I can't shake that statement. It haunts me. It sticks with me every day. And it's a question I think every 
pastor should ask themselves. In other words, what I mean by that, what he meant by that, and what I mean by that, if we closed our doors tomorrow and you have a church of 100 or 30 or whatever church size you are, it would affect those people, right? I get that. They'll have to find a new church, whatever. But if, if your church closes its doors tomorrow and your community doesn't even notice, then are you really doing the work of God became the question for me. And so that drives a lot of what we do. I, I'm about balance and I preach this to our church. I think there are churches out there that have gotten a hold of truth and they love truth and, and you won't find anybody that loves truth more than me. And, but they'll, they'll have their truth and, and sit inside their church with their truth for the next 50 years and, and, you know, have their few people once in a while come in and get bad. They'll baptize a few a year and a few a year get the Holy ghost and, and they'll, you know, kind of be happy with that, but they could close their doors to the borrow in their community. It wouldn't bother their community. It wouldn't leave a hole or a void in the community at all. And then I think there are other churches that, and I'm not even saying maybe necessarily apostolic churches, but there are other churches that get so involved in the community and they're feeding the poor and, you know, they're doing all of these great works per se, but they're still not teaching people truth. And I look, I sit back and say, why can't we have both? Why can't we do both? And so why can't we have truth and love people and preach Acts 238 and see people baptized in Jesus name and see people get filled with the Holy Ghost and see people be discipled and grow? Why, why can't we do that? I don't think we have to give that up to also say, why can't we reach into our community and make a difference uh, at the same time? And so that's what we're trying to do. And Jesse, that's how we're trying to build our church. I want to be at a place where if our church shut down tomorrow, our community would be impacted and say, you guys can't leave. We need Landmark Church here. Um, and so, you know, we started doing those kind of ministries. So we pretty quickly, I went up to our probation and parole office and just had a meeting with them and said, what can we do to help you? Like, how can we serve you? And um, she said, Scott, she said, most of our folks coming out of prison are on parole or probation. You know, one of the things they have to do is take an anger management class. It's a mandated, it's stip, a stip, uh, you know, a mandated class they have to take. And there's really not good options here in town. Like we're desperate for an anger management program. And I said, we'll create one for you. And so we did, we created a, an anger management program and they started sending their folks to us. That's been going on for over 10 years. And, um, and pretty much if someone needs anger management in our area, we get them. Um, and so that, that was going well. And so one day she called the, the same lady, the district administrator called me and said, Hey, can I meet with you? So I went up there. Um, and she said, what could you do around substance use? And I said, well, now you're talking my language, even more than anger management. Like now you, you now you're talking my language. So I said, we can create something for you. So we created a substance use education program. And so they started sending us folks. 
Um, and then the division of family service heard about our classes. So she called me and said, Hey, Scott, I hear you're doing these classes. Is it only for probation floor or can we send people to you? And I said, no, they're open to anybody. So, so she started sending people, um, DFS workers. And then she called me one day and she said, Hey, can I meet with you? And I said, sure. And she, so I went up there, she said, you know, we're sending people to anger management. She's like, but our biggest issue, what we deal with is parents, you know, most of them are on drugs but they've done something. And so we've got their kids in the system, you know, we've taken their kids away. And one of the main things they have to do to get their kids back is take a parenting class. It's like, but there's not a great option. Do you guys do parenting? And I said, we do now. Right. And so uh, we created a parenting class. So for pretty much 10 years now, uh, once a week, we run an anger management, a parenting and a, a substance use class. Now, because those folks are mandated, to our programs. Um, they're not religious, uh, because of my background, uh, you know, and I didn't tell that part of the story, but I went back to school, got a master's degree in addiction studies. And so for my secular job, I'm a consultant for the federal and state government and, and do some other things, but I kind of travel around the country training substance use counselors and speaking at recovery conferences. Um, and so I kind of have that expertise. Um, and so, I wrote our, our material, much of our material. And so, you know, we started teaching these classes, but they're secular. But my point is, um, you know, I used to joke about this. Show me any outreach you can start in a church where the government mandates it, depending on how many people we have at a time, but at a time, the government mandates that every week on this night, 50 sinners have to walk into my building. Right. And not only that, they pay me to be there because we charge for the classes. So uh, if you don't even do any other outreach, we've got a steady stream of non-church people being forced to walk into my building every week. Now, again, we, we don't talk about God in those classes. We teach them anger management and substance use and parenting. And if they never come to my here's my point, and not everybody might agree with this, but if they never come into my church, well, I would like to see that. I still believe I'm fulfilling the will of God because I'm still doing what I call Matthew 25 ministries and I'm making a difference in my community. But I can just tell you that when these people are coming in, you know, these are six week, 10 week classes. And so we pray over all the chairs before they get there. And when, and you know, when, when they come in and we begin to interact with them and it's me and my wife that teach the classes, when we begin to interact with them, um, and just, you know, just from that relationship, um, I can't tell you how many of those folks end up coming to our church just on their own. And, and then that's when you begin, can begin to work with them, you know, in, in the spiritual realm. Um, you know, um, I, I, I was at a family camp maybe two years ago here in Missouri, and I'm kind of standing in the third or fourth row and, you know, worship's going on. And I see this guy go running across the front of family camp, just shouting and dancing and praising that guy, how we met him, that guy walked into our church a couple of years before that, because he was mandated to come for anger management. And the first night he ever walked into our building, he was one of the angriest guys you would ever want to meet. I mean, he, my wife was teaching the class that night and he went off, not really on her, but I don't need to be here and I don't have an anger problem. This is a bunch of nonsense and just, you know, and my wife just loved him and, and, uh, you know, was respectful to him and polite. 
And over that anger management program, my wife built that relationship and he just started showing up at church one day and uh, got filled with the Holy Ghost baptized. He actually ended up marrying my wife's sister. He's now my brother-in-law and he's one of the most solid saints in my church and a worshiping machine, but he came through that anger management program. So, um, so, so you were so, talking a little bit about if your church has shut down, what would your city think? Would they need your church? Yeah. Um, so your church is obviously a lifeline to your community. Where did that passion get birthed at? Is it from your past addictions? Is it because it's a need in your city? Where did that passion get birthed from? And are you talking about the specific ministries we do or just like that passion to, to do that in the community? The passion to reach your hurting community because so many churches, you know, and I've been a part of a couple of churches. I've, I, and let me make this clear. I've been a part of two churches that sometimes that passion just lacks. Where do yeah. you guys keep that burning desire from? So, so it's in me because of my background, number one. And, and so I am just, I mean, I'm a, pa I'm passionate about helping people, um, prison, specifically people that struggle with substance use. And, and, you know, it's not only my passion kind of in the church world, right, but it's what I do for a secular job. So I live, breathe and eat recovery. Um, I mean, I do it all day long at work and, and then, uh, you know, I come home and do it at church. So like it, it, it is my life. Um, and so, and, um, and then when that gentleman, you know, that I spoke of told me that statement, Scott, will your community miss your church? Um, if you shut down tomorrow, you know, that really got a hold of me. So not just as a personal passion, but as a church passion, and so, you know, we've been blessed, I guess, and, and not that we don't have people that have moved in here that have been lifelong Pentecostals. We have those folks. But, you know, starting a church, you can kind of create the culture you want, you know, in that church. Like it's a joke around, you know, I've heard stories of churches splitting because the pastor wanted to take pews out and put chairs in, you know, or whatever. Um, people kind of get set in their ways. Like we've never had that because, you know, my, my culture that we've created here is just like, sometimes they joke and be like, well, if you don't like something, just hang in there. Cause Scott will change it in six months. <laughs> He'll try something new. Like, like we never get set in our way. Like we're always just trying different things. And, um, and so, so, but it is interesting because I've had a desire for a number of years now. So to kind of tell you where our church is heading. So we're doing these classes, but it's just me and my wife on Monday. Uh, um, we were doing them on Sunday nights because we didn't have a Sunday night service. And now we've moved it to Monday nights. But so we're doing these classes and we're seeing growth and things. But, you know, I have a vision of where I'm trying to take our church. And so I begin to share that vision with the church. And one of those visions I share with them is we um, the, the next step for us. And, and I want to open this up here in just a minute to talk about what I would love to see within our our denomination, you know, within the United Pentecostal Church. And I think we are starting to see it. But so the biggest need, one of the biggest needs out there, and, and I know this just from my secular job as well, but one of the biggest needs out there for people that have been down and out or coming out of prison, coming out of drug treatment, they've burned all their bridges. The, one of the, the biggest issues for getting people back on their feet is a safe place to live, is housing. Um, I mean, 
it's a huge need. And so, you know, in my mind for years, our next step was to start a recovery house. But but the difficult part about starting a recovery house, and I do a lot of work with recovery houses all across the state in my secular job, is you've got to have the right person live there to really make it work. Right. So if you open a lady's house, you've got to have a single lady that will live, be willing to live in the house with other ladies, give up her life, not date, not have a husband, not have kids. Right. Like it's 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 chat be stable themselves. It's it's I don't think it's a mandate. Yeah. And it's really, really preferred for them to be in recovery themselves. So, so we're waiting and waiting in the back of my mind, I'm praying. And then God sent us a lady a few years ago, began attending our church. And I just felt like she's the one. And so I let her get solid. She's in recovery herself. She's about 27 single. And I approached her one day about starting a recovery house. And she's like, yeah, I, I, this is what something I've wanted to do. She's like, even in my own recovery I let people just stay on my couch all the time that I'm trying to help get into recovery. It's like, I would love to run a house, but I didn't have the means. We want to open a house, but we didn't have the right lady, right? Our newspaper just did an article about our house last week. And her quote in that paper was, God brought us together. It was like this miracle. So five months ago, we bought a house here in Jeff City with church funds, opened our own recovery house. And uh, she lives there. And we got our first four ladies living in that house. Um, and I, I had actually made sure because I checked with my wife about this, but um, all four of those ladies have the Holy Ghost now. They've been in the house five months and two of them have been baptized and all four have the Holy Ghost. And all four of them now have anywhere from four to eight months um, off drugs and working jobs. They're doing great. But the thing that struck me to your question, I remember when I stood up in front of our church about a year ago. Uh, and when I approached the lady in our church, and once I knew she was on board, I stood up in front of our church and said, here's our vision. Here's my vision. We want to start this recovery house, but here's my real vision. We, over the next 10 years, we want to have 30 recovery houses. We want to fill Jeff city with landmark recovery houses. About two weeks ago, I held a board meeting after church and I have five board members and we were talking about some money things and we were talking about the recovery house. Cause it's a lot of work. I mean, it takes uh, it, it some days I'm like, what did we do? Um, but one of my board members said, pastor, can I just tell you something? Me and my wife were just talking about this last night. I said, sure. He said, when you stood up in front of the church and said, you wanted to open a recovery house, he said, going home that night, I told my wife, that's pastor's vision. But it wasn't the church's vision. It was pastor's vision. He said, but just in five months, the culture that this, I, I don't even know if I can explain it great on here, but what has happened to our church in the last five months? I mean, he looked at me and he almost with tears in his eyes, he said, I just want to tell you, this isn't your vision any longer. This is our vision. Like it's changing the culture of our church. Um, just seeing these ladies come in and watching what God's doing. And one of the things we did, so we created, you know, a whole recovery program for these ladies. So they work during the day, they pay to be at the house, but every night, pretty much throughout the week, there's something they have to go to. So we have recovery classes, spirituality classes, different things they go to. But on Friday nights, we call it Landmark Connection. 
every Friday night, a different family in our church has these four ladies over to their house for dinner and to play games or to do something with them just to get to know them so that they're connecting, not just with me, you know, not just with our house manager, but they're, and so as our people begin to connect with these folks, I mean, it's just, it's taken our church to a place that I can't even describe. Um, And that's along with, um, we kicked off about the same time, a Celebrate Recovery group on Wednesday nights. But what I told our church is we're not going to do it on a, a lot of churches do like a recovery ministry on an off night. I told our church, we're going to do it on Wednesday night and I'm going to make the whole church sit in our Celebrate Recovery meeting. Because if you study the Celebrate Recovery material, it's good stuff, whether you're, you've ever had a drug problem or not. I mean, it talks about forgiveness and, you know, surrendering and all these things. And so we've been running that for about four or five months. And in our church on Wednesday nights, we used to have maybe 30, 40 people for our Bible study. We could go six months and never have a visitor on a Wednesday night, even though God was growing our church on Sundays, right? A couple of Wednesday nights ago, we had 32 visitors, roughly, on one night, right? There, since we started Celebrate Recovery, there hasn't been a Wednesday night where we haven't had a visitor in our service. And so our building is filling up now, even on Wednesday nights, our Celebrate Recovery program. And, and, and we're bringing people in on Wednesday nights that I know even through my job. I don't know if everybody would agree with this, um, but I know a lady in Kansas City. Again, we won't, agree, me and her don't agree theology, but this lady 15 years ago was a prostitute living on the streets of St. Louis or Kansas City being sex trafficked by her pimp, addicted to drugs. She turned her life around through the help of God. She now owns over 20 houses in Kansas City. So tonight she houses over 200 people. She's pitched, she's thrown out a pitch for the Royals. She's been honored by the mayor of Kansas City. The city keeps giving her houses. She has taken over a whole drug-infested neighborhood of Kansas City that used to have the highest crime rates, and now there's almost no crime because it's all recovery houses. I brought her to my church a few Sunday, or Wednesday nights ago and had her get up you know, and tell her story to my church. And people are just captivated and crying. And again, she's not going to get up and teach my church theology. We wouldn't agree on that. But what I want them to see is one lady that got a burden and turned her life around to see what she can do. Like, like it's right. If we can get a hold of what God's calling us to do, the possibilities are unlimited. I mean, and, and so, you know, these recovery ministries, the recovery house, the, the celebrate recovery, they're just, they're, they're turning our church upside down um, with just, you know, the passion that our people are catching to do these things. And so, you know, we, we, we've got a vision um, this summer, we're getting ready to launch a whole recovery center out of our church. So it's going to be staffed by volunteers. So there will be activities going on 24 hours, you know, pretty much all day long, seven days a week. There will be people will be doing um, running and recovery, yoga recovery, a variety of different kind of recovery classes. We want that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if someone in Jeff City wakes up in a moment of clarity, because if someone in a moment of clarity decides right now, well, I don't even know what time it is right now, but on this Friday night, if someone in Jeff City right now decides I've got to 
change. I got to stop using heroin. If they don't get help by tomorrow morning, that moment will have passed and they're going to go back to using. We want to open a recovery center out of our church where people can find hope and help 24 hours a day, seven days a week is, is our next step starting this summer. So that is, that is really awesome. Um, you talked about the, these, your next steps, uh, and, and you had mentioned something before about the UPC, something you would like to see more of. And I'm, I'm curious what, what all that is. Yeah. So, so here's what was going on in my secular job. I traveled the state of Missouri, like I said, and really the country, um, helping counselors and helping, uh, you know, there's a lot of faith-based groups that do recovery work. So I work with a lot of faith-based groups. And so, and I was just praying all the time because I'm like, God, and, and I don't even know who all listens to this podcast. So, you know, I, I don't ever want to offend anybody, but I was praying all the time because I'm traveling the state and I'm helping Methodist churches and Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches set up recovery ministries and they're successful. And one example, you know, I won't say where it's at, obviously, but there was a church that one lady in a denominal church got a burden to, to start a recovery ministry. So, so I started working with them to help them. And again, this is through my secular job. So this is what I'm paid to do. This lady over the last five years, the ministry, one lady that got this burden, they now have a weekly recovery ministry where they're bringing in on average a hundred people a week come to their recovery ministry. And, and they are just turning their city upside down. But here's the thing, right? So I'm driving to that city to help them um, get this set up. And every time I pull into their church parking lot, I look across the street and there's a United Pentecostal church right across the street with a sign in the yard. And every time I pulled into that denominal church and see the great work they're doing with recovery and how many people's lives are coming in. And again, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to get into a theolog- theological debate with anyone. I don't know. I'm not saying they're saved. I believe in truth. But I can tell you, I can go to that denominal church and, and I can show you close to 100 people weekly who there's no doubt their lives have turned around in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I was, um, so I'm praying, God, I'm tired of helping these denominal churches be successful, right? My passion, how can I combine my passion for recovery and all this, but how can I get United Pentecostal churches on board, right? I I, I have to be here helping this church because of my secular job, but I want to be across the street because they can do that same work. Um, and so, you know, that's what I'm saying is, and, and I see that happening. And I don't know, um, you guys are, I'm sure, familiar with BOT, right? Because of the times. Yeah. Um, I'd heard for years, got to go to BOT, got to go to BOT. And so I believe it was 2017. I could be getting the year wrong, but I finally worked it out where I could go to BOT. So I go to BOT and I, all I've heard is this is this incredible conference. It's going to change your life best preaching, you know, you've ever heard. Right. I go to bot and there's no doubt. I mean, incredible preaching, right? Um, great services, but I can tell you, I called my wife cause she didn't go. I took my assistant pastor and we went down and I called my wife from, from bot and said, you know, the preaching has been great, 
but what changed my life, my, what I loved about bot that year was there was a, they do a day panel every year. And that year, the panel, uh, and I, I, I won't say names, but I don't think it would matter because they, you know, did it publicly at bot, but three of our well-known, you know, speakers in, in the UPC got up and told personal stories about family members. One told about how his son has battled alcohol and been in and out of treatment centers. Another pastor on that panel talked about, so this is a pastor of a large, thriving United Pentecostal church, well-known in our movement. And this pastor got up and talked about how his wife battles depression and has spent time in and out of psych units in their local hospital because of depression and how his churches support him. But seeing them in front of all these people at BOT be vulnerable and talk about these issues. That was my favorite session more than any of the preaching. And I'm like, this is, so I guess my point is I'm excited because I'm not sure people would have been open to talk about that 20 years ago, maybe. I don't know, because again, I was kind of new, but it just seems to me like right now and, and you guys, I'm sure people like you are helping make this difference, but it seems like there is a swell right now where apostolics are catching this vision. Um, and, and so what I said, what I want to see, I, I'm I, for the last couple of years now, I just got elected as a presbyter of Missouri recently. And so I've stepped down because, you know, I'm trying to grow churches and we're getting ready to start another church. Um, but so, but for the last couple of years, I was the chaplain for our district, for the Missouri district. Uh, and that's getting ready to be turned over to someone else. But you know, that's what I've been driving, trying to get churches on board. Like this is, uh, this is just my belief. Uh, obviously it's probably coming across. I'm passionate about this, but I believe every single United Pentecostal church should be doing some kind of what I call again, Matthew 25 ministry. I mean, I don't know what we're going to do if you stand before God and I get truth. Don't get me wrong. Again, I'll always say, you're not going to find a guy that believes truth more than me, but in Matthew 25, at least, when Jesus separates and tells the story of separating the sheets from the goats, he doesn't mention anything about baptism. He doesn't mention the Holy Ghost. He says, I'm going to put the sheep and say, come inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And it's based on feeding the poor, visiting people in prison and helping the sick. There's nothing about doctrine in Matthew 25. And he's going to say to the others, depart from me. And they're going to say, why? And he's going to say, because you didn't do these things. Um And so, again, I don't think we have to give one up for the other. I believe every United Pentecostal church that has truth can keep their truth and and love truth and still fulfill the other part of what I believe God is not. I don't think it's a suggestion. I think God just to do these things. Absolutely. Um, And so that's what I'm excited about. I was thinking about it earlier before I got on here. I think in the last year and a half. I've helped 10 to 15 churches in the Missouri district start celebrate recovery ministries. And almost all of those are still up running, doing well. Next Saturday, I'm going to a new church and spending all day with their leadership and they're getting ready to launch a celebrate recovery. And so I see our churches catching it. I think the next step for our churches is to start opening housing and houses and, um, and going into those kind of ministries. And, and I see that happening. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. That is something that I hope that we can catch a passion and burden for. 
Um, we went to uh, Indiana uh, a few years ago, and I saw something that just absolutely blew my mind. This church had bought a nursing home, mm. and they – this sounds kind of morbid, but it's not. They waited till every single patient was no longer in there, and they didn't force them out by no ways. But they took that nursing home building. They completely gutted it out, remodeled it, made it into apartments. And what they did is if you were a widow in the community, you lived there for free. Wow. Because the Bible very clearly instructs us to take care of. um, I cannot believe that our churches, um, you know, we just. We think church is nine o'clock, six o'clock, wait two days. Let's go back at seven. Yeah. On Wednesday. Yeah. The church yeah. is not a building. The church is a lifestyle. It's a community. And I pray that, you know, hopefully somebody that listens to this episode that we've recorded tonight can grab onto that, that passion and that burden. I really want people to just sit back and understand and listen to the name celebrate recovery that's not just a title that's not just a uh the name of a group but it's people that are celebrating just like we had in a past episode brian who is those people that we recorded with that you didn't you were so nervous to talk about that had celebrate recovery with their son oh the lumpkins (laughs) yeah lumpkins he was the guy i wasn't gonna say but brother lumpkin was the the guy that talked at bot that year yeah so we recorded an episode with him and his wife and uh they talked they were talking about um it doesn't matter if it's one day one hour one minute they're gonna be happy and they're gonna celebrate the soberness for one minute for one hour Mm -hmm. for one for one day for one week for one month for one year you know it doesn't take a milestone every minute is a milestone and i just i hope brian that somebody can catch this passion that we've talked about tonight it's it's something that i I feel is you know very much so needed in our movement and in our organization and we have people that's not in our movement that listen to this you know this isn't a a dominant or a uh dominant what is the word i'm looking for it's not a religion thing that's what i'm looking for this is a people thing people thing It's a people thing. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sitting down with Brian and I. Brian, you got anything else you want to add to this? No, I think uh, everything that needs to be said has been said. I think it's been very effective. And I think that, uh, and I hope that somebody out there catches this same burden. Absolutely. uh, That's been talked about in this same passion, because it's really all of our callings. Absolutely. To our listeners out there, go love somebody. Go take care of somebody. You see someone that's hurt. I mean, let's let's be there for them. You know, that's that's really inspired me tonight. Yeah, yeah. But, can I? I'll just say this. Um, at our family camp, we they always have each night before the main speaker like a five minute keynote. You know, and and so I did the keynote at the last camp. But um, what I told the, our family camp that night, you know, twenty eight years ago, who knew that. 28 years who knew that the section nine presbyter was a drug dealer you know um and i told them 
our next district superintendent, our next general superintendent of the UPC, your next song leader, the pastor of your next church, whatever, tonight, they, they may be sitting in a drug house shooting up with heroin tonight. Who knows uh, what God can do? But somebody's got to look him in the face like that lady did to me 28 years ago and look me in the eye and tell me, Scott, God's got a plan for you. God wants to use you. And there's no telling where you would be without that lady. No, absolutely. no telling. So I guess my best advice, Brian, is go be that lady for somebody. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Pastor Breelove, thank you so much for taking time with us, bro. Absolutely. Uh, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed this episode. Um, if, if anybody wants to get a hold of you and, and try to talk to you about how they can start Celebrate Recovery in their church, can they connect with you on social media? What's the best way to do that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know how you guys do this. I, I'd give my cell phone, my email. They can look me up on Facebook. It would be the, you know, a good way. Um, I, I actually, someone just put a post on Facebook the other day and someone gave my name and, um, you know, just in the last week, I've talked to a pastor from Indiana and one from Idaho. Uh, and was trying to, you know, help them. So yeah, anything I could do, I'd be willing for sure. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to another Crucial Conversation.